our New Testament Jude as we start a new series on Jude. And I've titled this message, Why Jude? Uh, people like happy messages. They like encouraging messages. And, you know, in difficult times, we really need the encouragement. And they look at this book and see that he is condemning, that he is saying things that offend people, that even dividing the churches themselves. And people wonder why would we want to study Jude? Well, in a word, inspiration. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, sometimes people dislike a book like Jude, but they really aren't understanding that it is from God. That is what God wrote for us to read. It is as relevant to us today as it was 2,000 years ago. And it's critical for us today. Uh, one reason I really like going through whole books is because you don't pass over the things that are hard. <laughs> uh, you don't get into trouble by tickling ears only preaching things that are acceptable. And we're going to do this book not for the purpose of division, as this church is very united, but for the, the purpose of, of lifting up our hearts and encouraging us in this great call to contend for the faith, to walk according to what God wants us to walk, to be the people that he wants us to be, whether we are you know, fighting a deep war in the trenches in a divided church or whether we are simply considering the things we hear, the things we see, the things we read, and being careful to follow the right faith, the true faith. And so this is youthful. This is a true work of the Holy Spirit. You know, a lot of people today are talking about how, oh, you know, the Spirit of God told me this or the Spirit told me that. Well, I have here what the Spirit of God has told his people. And that is why we will look at this today. Uh, first, let us read the book. I will read the whole thing today. I won't be doing that every week. <laughs> but we should read it all today so that we get a picture of it in our mind as we consider his introduction and his purpose. So Jude, starting at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I, want, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once knew it fully, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, 
but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. They feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting upon the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It is also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all these harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Lord Our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. So you see, he gives an introduction. He goes on for a while talking about those who are trying to corrupt the faith. And then he gives us a great call to perseverance in the wonders and glories of God. And finishes it with a doxology. Um, Quite an interesting book and quite a valuable book to us to consider. But first, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that 
You have recorded many things for us in your word that we may consider them, that we may be encouraged by them, that we may be instructed by them, informed of the way we ought to lead our lives and live for your kingdom. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at this book and begin it this week, that you would open our hearts to see the, the glory and the wonder of yourself, of your kingdom, of your salvation, and of the place that we have been called to. And we ask, Lord, for your presence with us, your spirit to help us interpret and understand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So he starts off with the usual introduction, but there are a few differences here. He starts identifying himself, and it's always a problem with a name like Jude. You'll remember Jude was the fourth son of Jacob, and so before Judas Iscariot, the name would have been fairly popular, and there are a number of Judes in the New Testament. There's Judas Iscariot who betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. He was chosen as a disciple, but he betrayed him and, and hanged himself. So it's not him. There's Jude the Apostle. He's identified in John 14 as Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord. So there's an apostle also named Jude. Uh, He goes also by the name we see in the book of Acts, chapter 1. Let's see, verse 13. He is called James the son of James the son of Elphias, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So there's another Judas who's an apostle, who's the son of James. And then lastly, there's the Lord's brother. He's mentioned in Mark chapter 6 when they're mocking Jesus. Oh, where did he get these powers? You know, his mother is here, his sisters are here, his brothers are here. And says, isn't he the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? They take offense at him. So one of the Lord's brothers was Judas. Now, which one is the author of the book? Well, the writer introduces himself as Jude, a bond servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, this James is probably the well-known James, the one who was at the Jerusalem council and spoke to the people in Acts 15. He stood up after everything was said and said, Brothers, listen to me. And he gave his opinion. And he's also referenced in Galatians chapter 1 by Paul as one of only two men that he had met in Jerusalem. The first being, of course, Peter, and the second, James, the Lord's brother. And so he's very famous. And the question might be, well, why would Jude not call himself an apostle if he was an apostle, and why would he not call himself the Lord's brother if he was the Lord's brother? Well, it's not the apostle, it's definitely the Lord's brother, the brother of James, who was also one of Jesus' brothers. However, he's a half-brother, and here he's very specifically emphasizing the point that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. You know, if you introduce yourself, and I am the Lord's brother, Jude, you know, you're elevating yourself very high. But he was only a half-brother, and he wasn't a believer until after the Lord rose from the dead. And so he's humbling himself, calling himself a servant of Jesus, not introducing himself as a Lord. 
He's not writing for his own purpose, his own glory, his own ministry, his own success. But you'll notice when we read through the book, the other men that he is writing against, the one he is struggling against, were very proud and were really working for themselves. Shepherds who feed only themselves, they're called. And so he's making a contrast there by not identifying himself directly as the Lord's brother, but as the Lord's servant and brother of James, so that they would know who he was. And note also his intended audience. He's written this book to those who are called, not meaning the outward call that goes to many. Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen in Matthew twenty-two fourteen. 14. Uh, not meaning that call that is the call of the gospel, and how will they call on whom they have not believed and how will they believe if they haven't heard and how will they hear if, without someone preaching? We're not talking about that call, but more the inward call, the one we see in Romans 8. Remember that great promise? For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. We're talking about that effectual calling that God does, that changing of the heart as we've seen in uh, Ezekiel 36. I'll take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you, cause you to walk according to my statutes. We're talking about that kind of calling. We're talking about believers, true believers, beloved in God the Father. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and the Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him, John 14, 23. This keeping of the word, this obedience that Jesus talks about is also what Jude is talking about in this book contending for that faith, not allowing it to be turned aside, not allowing anyone to say, well, let me show you in a more comfortable way, or let me show you how we need to adapt that to modern times. Let me show you how we need to make that acceptable. Let me show you how to reimagine it all in your heart, the blessing of your spirit. Uh, He's not talking like that. This is the calling that comes from God's spirit, and those who are called will keep his word and they will be beloved of the Father and kept for Jesus. In First Peter 2.9, we saw that we are defined as a people for his own possession, a people for Christ. And note the Trinity here, being called by the Holy Spirit, beloved by the Father, kept for the Son. A very clear emphasis on the persons of the Godhood and their place in our salvation and in our our life with God. So that's Jude's intended audience. But note also in verse 2 his intended purpose. May peace, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He is not writing a book, may you become angry and fight the good fight and go out and wage war till the ends of the earth. No, he is calling on mercy, peace, and love to them. Now, mercy is usually not used in greetings in the New Testament epistles. But where it does occur in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 2 John, and here, there is that problem of false teachers being discussed. 
And really, the call for mercy is that reminder to us that we really need is unmerited grace, is mercy to be able to endure in those difficult situations where there are people teaching against the word and against God. And he wants them to have peace, peace with God, yes, and peace with each other. Once you've been reconciled to God, you have peace with God. And once you have peace with God, you can have peace then with all of your brothers. And that peace (coughs) is important for them. And it's a peace that is lost when we follow false teachers. John says in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. This is doctrine. So that you too may have fellowship with us. That doctrine is necessary for fellowship. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And so that doctrine, right doctrine, is necessary to fellowship with each other, to have fellowship with God. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. You know, people ignorantly say doctrine divides because they want to hold false doctrine and they want to use that to fight against others. And some people who hold true doctrine use doctrine to divide unnecessarily. But that's not what God wants. God wants true doctrine so that we can have fellowship based on sharing the same faith, the same God. That faith once for all delivered unto the saints. And so that peace and that love that he's calling for are disrupted when there are people teaching against God and against what he has called us to do. Now James goes on in more detail in verse 3 to talk about why he is writing. Now he is writing to the beloved again, to those believers. Now there's a second group starting, he mentions in verse 4, that he spends a lot of the book talking about. But he's writing to the believers and he says, I was eager to write you about our common salvation. Jude wanted to write them concerning those glorious things of the gospel. Now remember the angels in Luke chapter 2, 10 and 11. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. You know, he wants to write them about those glorious things of the gospel. But why did he write them? He goes on to say, But I found it necessary to write appealing to you or exhorting you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints. He exhorts them to contend for the faith. It's something that is absolutely necessary. Who are you worshiping? Christ. Well, who is Christ? That is what he is asking us to contend for. Who is God? What does God want? What has God done? What does he call you to do? It's so important for you to contend for that faith. And you might ask yourself, well, did he change his mind as to what he was writing for? He wanted to write about the gospel, but now he's going to write about contending for the faith. Or is it one and the same thing? I think it's one and the same thing. 
notice his condemnation of false teachers and false doctrine and his encouragement to persevere really are all related to Jesus and all related to the gospel. I remember once in Cambodia, I've mentioned this before, I was interviewing somebody to be a translator and helper in the ministry. I started asking him about, basically for his testimony. He said, oh, we don't need any of that doctrine. All we need is Jesus. I said, well, who is Jesus? And he just kind of looked at me. He had no answer. Who is Jesus? If we go out sharing the gospel and we say that Jesus is the created biological son of God and brother of Satan, as the Mormons do, are we saying the gospel? Is it useful to people? Is it helpful to people? If we say, oh, you know, Jesus is a man who is in tune with God, God being the the divine, impersonal, universal consciousness, like the Christian science does. Are we sharing the gospel? Are we talking about the Jesus whom we have faith? If we say he's a created angel, a created being, that he's Michael the archangel who became man, as the Jehovah Witnesses do, are we talking about Jesus of the Bible? No. If we say that he's only a prophet, not God, he's one way to heaven, as the Muslims do, are we talking about Jesus? You know, we need doctrine to define who Jesus is. Doctrine is not an evil word. It is a word the Bible uses over and over again, although our English translations usually hide it with the word teachings, which is the same thing. But we need those facts, those truths, those beliefs, that were for all delivered unto the saints, to know who Jesus is and to know who the gospel. Just as who Jesus is is always under attack, so is the gospel as well. I was shocked to learn that according to modern Roman Catholicism, Mary is your co-redeemer, and without her you can't be saved. Um, seriously, if you teach people, if your evangelism message includes You must revere Mary because she is your co-redeemer. Is that going to save you? If you tell people that your sins can be forgiven by a cash donation, that was what caused the Reformation, is that gospel going to save souls? We need the doctrines that are true, the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints. If we tell people, oh, God will reward you with salvation if you're good enough, weighed in the balance and found better good than evil. Is that person going to be able to be saved by that gospel? If we say, oh, you know, God wants the best people, and as long as you make yourself one of the best, you're in heaven. Will that save? We say, here are a list of man-made rules that you must follow, and that saves you, like the Pharisees did. Is that gospel going to save If we tell people, oh, God just wants them to be happy and salvation is about your happiness here on earth, can they be saved? Is that truth? You say, oh, you say this certain prayer, and having said that prayer, God will save you, even if you don't believe the prayer, even if you don't care about God, just say it to cover your bases. Is that save? You know, he's writing to us to contend for the faith because these doctrines concerning our common salvation are critical to salvation. Without the truth, without true doctrine, right beliefs, right knowledge, the faith once for all delivered unto the saints, we can't know enough to be saved. 
man says, well, what is truth? What is the truth here? What is the gospel? Well, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. For even one sin, we deserve an eternal punishment in hell. We can never pay for that ourselves. And so we must desperately look for salvation outside of ourselves. And we have in the Bible that salvation defined as coming from God, from Christ, in his work. What did he do? Well, he did what we were supposed to do. He lived his life perfectly under the law. He obeyed all of the tenets of the law. He did all the just things that God required of him. And that those good things are imputed to his people by faith. And in the same way, our sins, which prevent us from ever seeing God, were imputed to Christ on the cross, and they were paid for on the cross. And through that double imputation, we are now able to stand before God, and he sees in us not our corruption and wickedness, but he sees in us the work of Christ. And that is received only by faith. And that is the faith once for all delivered unto the saints that we're talking about here, that Jude is talking about. That faith is what saves. And that is truth, absolute truth. Man says, well, what is truth? You have your truth, I have my truth. No, there is one truth, God's truth. Men, even Christians, may may fumble around with that, but it doesn't make it not true. God's truth is still true. And it is the only real truth. Faith in this passage, the faith once for all delivered unto the saints that we are to contend for, includes the gospel. It includes the Savior. And it includes everything God has called us to do and everything God has called us to be. It includes all of Scripture. Nothing God has written is meaningless to us. God is not a fool who writes random things for people to be annoyed about. He writes the truth. And he's called on that us to contend for that truth. Don't allow it to be taken away from you. You know, what happens if we are a faithful believer and yet we're deceived and confused and we pray to Mary? Is God pleased? Is our relationship with him made better or is it made worse? Right, these are very serious matters because they're what make us believers and what allow us to be with Christ, with God. We don't want to give offense to God. Now, people call the book of Jude contentious. And in a way, you can call it that, but it's contentious with those who hate God. And there has to be a certain amount of contention between you, and that's why he calls us to contend for the faith, but we can contend without being unnecessarily contentious. Now, you might think I'm making a strange distinction, but remember what we read in 1 Peter 3. We saw this just recently in verses 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Contend for the faith. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when they slander you, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good than evil. 
if it should be God's will. Now we're called upon, yes, to contend for the faith, to give an answer for the truth, and yet to do so in a manner that is gentle and respectful, that honors where honor is due, not dividing, but calling to repent. Peter also, in the next chapter, in 1 Peter 4, 14 and 15, we saw, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Now, we are called upon to give that glory to God, to do it in a right manner, not to stir up unnecessary hatred for us. Yes, they hate Christ, and if they hated him, they will hate us. And they hated his word, and if they hate his word, they're going to hate it when they hear it from us. But we should do it with gentleness, with respect, not deliberately causing trouble. You know, Paul warns us about being too contentious in defending the faith in the book of Galatians. In the end of the book, in chapter 5, he says, you are called to, to freedom, brothers, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in the word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Yeah, he is warning them against biting and devouring, against being overly contentious. But what is the book of Galatians all about? And it starts off in chapter 1, verse 6 and following. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you to the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. You know, he's calling on these people who corrupt the gospel to be accursed, and he's saying at the end of the book, don't bite and devour each other. The two can go together. The two are not contradictory. He said, as I've said before, now I say again, if anyone's preaching your gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed, eternally condemned. Wow. He's harsh. He's firm. But that is not what it means to be overly contentious, not what it means to bite and devour. That is what he is necessary for him to do to people who are preaching a gospel that cannot save. We're trying to turn people, as we read this morning in our Old Testament reading, turn people away from God, the true God, to the God of our imaginations. And so we must contend for the faith without being contentious. The faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. And note that this faith is not the faith of a certain culture, the Jewish culture, not the faith of a certain people, not the faith of a certain era. It is the faith delivered by an all-knowing, all-wise God himself, directly to his people through his word. And that's important for us to remember because one of the great attacks in our day and age is, well, you know, that was fine for people 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, but our society has evolved, and we need to modernize 
our beliefs, bring them in line with what we understand and know today. Uh, They are forgetting that the faith once for all delivered unto the saints was delivered by God who knew everything from beginning to end, everything that's going to happen, every change of culture, every change of desire that would happen throughout all the ages in his word is not limited to people 2,000 years ago. The same things that applied to them apply to us today. The same things that were important to them are important for us today. God is unchanging, and his revelation is flawless, perfect. It was once for all delivered unto the saints, and it is under inspiration. Now, I will define inspiration briefly for you. I wrote it down because people sometimes mean something else by it. By inspiration of the Bible, we're talking about a special act of the Holy Spirit by which he guided the writers of the books of Scripture so that their words would convey the words he wished conveyed, the thoughts he wished conveyed, should bear a proper relationship to the thought of other inspired books, and should be kept free from errors of fact, doctrine, and judgment. Now, the people 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, may not have understood modern technology, but God did. And the Spirit guided them in such a way that they would not write things that were wrong, that they would not write error in doctrine, error in judgment, or error in fact. But it is all true, it is all complete. And as I'm trying to say, none of it is useless. It is useful, Paul said. Useful for the believer. And this faith faith was once for all delivered unto us. It's completeness, God's perfections, God's understanding of everything from beginning to end means we don't need a new revelation for how to adapt it to our current society. We don't need a new revelation telling us how to make it work with the modern world. Uh, I've seen translations of the Bible, you know, we need to get out the old culture and we're going to write a whole new interpretation of the Bible for people today. And we have a new religion for people today. But we don't need that. There's nothing in there that needs to be fixed, corrected, or perfected. It is complete already. We don't need personal revelations. We don't need the Holy Spirit showing us new things that weren't in Scripture. It is once for all delivered unto the saints. Each of these things I'm talking about, Jude is referencing in the book, and we'll come to them later. But we read the chapter we read for a reason this morning in Deuteronomy 13. And he ends it with, he says, you shall purge the evil from amongst your midst. Those who were trying to lead them to other gods were to be purged away. And the same is true today. And the same is true in Jesus' day. The same is true in Jude's writing. His writing, by the way, was probably around 50 A.D., if you're wondering, about 20 years after Christ. And so he is writing to us that we should persevere in the faith. And to persevere in the faith, we must preserve the faith. If the faith is lost, how do we know what to persevere in? God hasn't promised to show us each in our heart what God wants without the Bible. He hasn't promised that if the church becomes corrupt, that we will know what's right 
for ourselves and that we can all have our own right. You know, that's not the teaching of Scripture. Persevere in the faith to, by preserving the faith. As Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You know, we must believe the right things and then do what we believe. Life and doctrine go hand in hand. And so Jude says, I found it necessary to write about contending for our endangered faith because the gospel and everything God has revealed to us is under constant assault by those who don't understand it, by those who hate it. Remember what Paul said, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Now one of the reasons the gospel is under assault constantly is because people who aren't saved, and that's who he's talking about here, he's calling them ungodly, godless people, because godless people can't understand the faith, and so they pervert it and corrupt it. And if we get our faith from people who have perverted and corrupted it because they can't understand it, then we're really going to be in trouble. And so we contend, contend for the faith against those who are trying to pervert it for their own needs. So in verse 4, Jude moves on to identifying the problem he's addressing in the book. Now, since this problem in these people are explained in the next, about 15 verses, we'll leave getting into the details till then. But just as the gospel's bringer, Jesus, has enemies, so also the gospel has enemies. When he says, for certain people, these enemies, have crept in. Now, a few weeks ago, or a month ago, Wewen came to me and showed me holes in these packages that were in the bottom uh, cabinets of our kitchen. It's like, what happened? It's, it's rotting. I said, no, mice have crept in unawares, and they're eating. Oh. Of course, these aren't really like mice. They're a little more destructive. I, I remember... A missionary telling me that when he gets up in the morning, before he puts his boots on or his shoes on, he bangs them out. Because you never know what crawled in over the night. Scorpions. Snakes. The last thing you'd want to do is have one of those little vipers about this big bite you when you stick your foot in your shoe. Because you won't make it out of the house. They had, in Africa, they had what they called the two-step vipers. You got about two steps after you were bitten before you fell down. And you didn't have much hope unless somebody in the house was with you and had the antidote and antivenom and was able to do it immediately. Well, that's kind of what we're talking about here, though. These people have creeped into the church. They don't believe. They want to be part of the church. And they're very confused about what they're teaching. Uh, I remember years ago, I wasn't a pastor then, but I sat in on an exam, the floor exam, of somebody wanted to be a pastor. And he gave all the right answers perfectly. Everything the BPs believe, he was able to explain and defend from Scripture. And then we were put out of the room so they could vote. 
and was sitting out there and they approved him. And afterwards, he was over there celebrating with his friends. The BPs now have somebody who knows the gospel. And I'm like, so the gospel is not the things you were defending in there. No. That was just said because they needed to hear it. You know, he had deceived everybody. The church he was putting charge of collapsed, closed, property abandoned, everybody scattered. He didn't know the gospel. He didn't like the gospel. But he wanted to be in the church and he wanted to be the leader of the church. And I was very shocked and very sad and struggled what to deal with this. But that's just the way it is. Second uh, Corinthians 11, Paul says in verses 12 through 15, you know, what I'm doing I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So there's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. You know, we see it throughout history. These people, they creep into people's homes and turn them away from the truth. Uh, they creep into home Bible studies, into Sunday school classes. They look for cracks and start to teach a different doctrine. Most recently, we saw this in the Presbyterian Church with the, the um, what were they calling themselves, the new perspectives on Paul. You know, look to your baptism for assurance of your salvation. Uh, it became quite a problem as they were teaching this around and the pastor would suddenly find out that half the people in his church were rejecting his preaching now because they had this new doctrine that had been taught to them in secret. Now, God doesn't do anything in secret. He shared the doctrine once for all and it has been delivered to us, the truth, the faith, and we need to keep that. These people, they pretend to be holy. They misuse the Bible's words. Oh, God is love. And therefore, God loves whatever you love. And he wants you to be happy. So he loves whatever makes you happy. And these people who are telling you it's sin, they're evil. I remember an illustration many years ago of a child who thought he could fly. Climbs up onto the roof and jumps off and crashes and breaks his arm. And says, well, I know I can fly. Maybe it wasn't high enough. And the parent says, no, you can't fly. You're being foolish. Stop that. Oh, you don't love me. Well, what would love be? Oh, let's drive to the city and go to the top of the tallest building and jump off there. That's high enough. You'll be able to fly. Is that love? You know, is love what we want? Or is love what is true and what is right? You know, if it's true that what you love is going to send you to hell if you don't repent, then telling them it's okay is not loving. No more loving than telling the child to jump off the 12th floor. Uh, we need to understand love from a biblical perspective and wisdom from God's perspective, not from the desires of man. Now, we'll be looking at these people in more detail as we go. But note also they're unnoticed. These people are like a cancer that you don't know you have. 
My dad died of bone cancer a couple of years ago. He didn't know he had cancer. He was going along perfectly happy. Everything was normal. And one day he broke his hip. Well, he broke his hip because the bone cancer had rotted his hip to the point where it could no longer support his weight walking and broke. And that's how he discovered that he had cancer. And these people, these teachings, these false teachings can be like a cancer. They can grow unknown, unseen, undiscovered until they become very dangerous. In Presbyterian history, a man named Briggs was a pastor, turn of the last century, late 1800s. And he was a modernist. He was teaching, basically, there is no God. And what we need from the Bible is, you know, a Bible of religion that understands there's no God and is adapted to modern beliefs. He was eventually brought up on trials. And after a vicious, long fight, he was defrocked, removed from the pastorate and condemned as an unbeliever. Him, and only him. Thirty years later, the people who followed him in his day had grown in their groups and in their presbyteries to the point where they now outnumbered the believers. And you have the schism that led to the OPC and the BPs being formed where they didn't believe any of the doctrines that we would consider necessary. You remember the fundamentalist problem, the five fundamentalists of the faith, not the modern, no drinking, no smoking, but the vicarious atonement. Oh, that can't be true. God would never do something like that. Um, The virgin birth. Oh, that's impossible. Inspiration of scripture. Well, if there's no God, how can God inspire scripture? Now, there were... They were rejecting all of those things. In just 30 years, they had gone from an opportunity to deal with the cancer to being dead by the cancer. And that's what Jude is warning against. We must contend for the faith. If we allow that to happen, it'll fall. At that, in those days, Princeton was originally the greatest school in America for training ministers. The highest level of education, very faithful. But again, men saw that, oh, Princeton has endowments and I can get a salary for life and once I get tenure, I'm good. And they signed up and joined and whatever you want me to believe, that's what I believe. Princeton eventually drove out the believers and they formed another seminary because... They had not taken care to contend for the faith. Now, many of the men who were driven out were contending vigorously for the faith. But at that point, it was too late. The cancer had destroyed the church. The cancer had destroyed the seminary. That's what Jude is all about talking about. That contending for the faith before it becomes a problem. Nipping it in the bud, saying, no, 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 that's that's not the faith of the Bible. We don't want to teach that. We won't want to have that. It's wrong. Uh, Jude goes on to say that long ago they were ordained for this condemnation, these ungodly people, the ones Paul calls accursed. These are not our brothers that he's talking about. Elsewhere in Scripture, and we've looked at passages in the past, You know, people are teaching foolish things and they're told to be silent. 
because they're believers and they're confused or they're, they're getting beyond what they understand and teaching things they don't understand. And Paul condemns, com- commands them to be silent. Here we're talking about people who are unbelieving, who are trying to lead us off to other gods, often usually in our day and age, gods of their own imagining rather than the God of Scripture. Notice what he says about them in verse 4. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Now, God is love. If I love something, it's not sin, because God is love and he loves me to love what I want to love. No, homosexuality is sin. Immorality is sin. Sensuality of all different kinds is sin. And we'll see this sensuality is not just about sexual immorality, but it's about you know giving into our passions, giving into the spirit within us and pretending the spirit in us that tells us, you know, enjoy what you want to enjoy, that that spirit is the Holy Spirit. Uh, he, he gets into that in more detail, and we'll get to that when we get there. But that whole belief, if it makes you happy, it's good, is what he is condemning in this letter. The people who he is writing against are telling us to pursue not holiness, not godliness, but our passions, the things we desire. And if we indulge in our natural desires, verse 7, they rely on their dreams, verse 8, like unreasoning animals, they live by instinct, not the word of God, verse 10. He describes them fairly harshly, and we'll look at those. Things They're often called libertines, antinomians, but we can also call them spiritualists. Uh, people who think spiritual things are not the Holy Spirit, but the desires of the flesh. They're enemies, and in doing that, they deny the, gospel, they deny the Lord, and many of them go on to actually deny the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, by embracing sin, by embracing our love of sin, we're denying Christ. But it also leads us into hate what the Word says. If we want our sin to be holy, like my father told me when I shared the gospel with him, your God is a God of hate because he hates sin and calls us to repent. They deny the Lord by saying you don't need to repent. Jesus says in John 14, 21 and following. Whoever has my commandments and keep them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Now, Jesus is being a little roundabout, but what he's basically saying is, you know, the faith once for all delivered to the saints is the truth. If you love that, if you obey that, if you keep that, then you love me. If you don't keep that, you don't love me. And if you don't keep it because you've allowed it to be lost, you know, there's a world of hurt for us. Just why we must contend for the Bible. I know sometimes the word reformed gets a bad connotation, but what reformed means is taking the corrupt thing and reforming it back to what it should be. 
And the doctrine of the Reformation is not whatever somebody said it was a thousand years ago or a hundred years ago. But it is the idea of taking it back to Scripture and recovering the truth from the Scripture. The faith once for all delivered to the saints in the Scriptures is the faith that we want to have, the faith that we want to know, the words that we want to hear that Jesus is talking about, the word that we want to keep. But we have to know what it is. Jesus is requiring us to keep the right doctrine in both word, faith, and practice. And that's what Jude is saying we need to contend for. John adds to this in 1 John 2, 21 and following. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. That truth, that faith once for all delivered to the saints. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. You know, knowing the truth, understanding the truth, living the truth is what it's all about and why it is so important in Jude's mind to write to them. I, I had to write to you. I was compelled to write to you to contend for that faith. These enemies are turning the gospel into no gospel at all. They're turning your life away from God. And as Paul said, he said in the end of 1 Corinthians 16, 21 to 24, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, love for the Lord we've defined from Jesus himself is keeping his word, let him be accursed. O Lord, come, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is concerned with true love. Love for God, love for the brothers, not according to our heart and our desire, but according to truth. And that is what Jude is saying. Now, I want you to have mercy and peace and love. I want it to be multiplied to you. But those are the true mercy, peace, and love. The love of what doctrine that faith once for all committed unto the saints. Knowing God truly, knowing all he's revealed to himself, of himself, and following that is what draws us near to him. We, we are able then to see him in his true glory. And that is the most encouraging and uplifting thing we can have. Now, people want uplifting messages, but drawing near to the true God is the most uplifting message there is. And so I would argue that, well, yes, some of Jude is hard because he's fighting a war against those who want to turn us from God. It is an uplifting book and an uplifting message because it is all about the battle that we must fight in our lives from day to day to be near to God, to experience the truth of God and his love and his kingdom and his glory. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we know often that fighting for the truth becomes contentious, becomes troublesome, becomes painful. As men hate the truth and as we don't always 
love the way we should. We pray, Lord, that you teach us to love you as we ought, to keep your word, to encourage others to see the truth of your word, that they might know you as we know you, that they might have faith in the true God, the one true living God, and his Son and our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to contend for the faith without being contentious, as that is the desire of Jude, that we would glorify you and the world would know you. And that is our desire as well. And we ask your blessing as we try to do this in Christ's name. Amen.